Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, I'm Dexter Fergie, and you're listening to New Books in History, a channel of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Aaron Hiltner, a lecturer at University College London, who published a fascinating book that shakes up a lot of the narratives that we tell ourselves about the Second World War. It's titled Taking Leave, Taking Liberties, American Troops on the World War II Home Front. American historians tend to keep the home front separate from the battlefront, but as Hiltner shows, about three out of four servicemen in the months leading up to D-Day were stationed domestically, while one in four never went abroad at all. In other words, a lot of GIs spent a lot of time in the U.S., especially in places like San Francisco, San Francisco Boston, and other Liberty ports. In these places, catcalling, theft, assaults, rapes, drunkenness, harassment, fistfights, rackets, um, all of these things were taking place and were, as Hiltner shows, a part of the wartime experience. Um, and so, Aaron, I'm so excited that we're talking about this book. Thanks for coming on to the program. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really happy to discuss it with you. Uh, and um, just to begin, I was really struck by your uh, very neat description of the classic GI story, the the one about you know the um, young naive American uh, you know teenagers going abroad, being exposed to foreign dangers, and then coming back as hardened veterans. Um, I think a really good place to start is with that story. Um, so can you just share with listeners um, a little bit more about that classic story, you know, what it looks like, and um, in your, uh, from your perspective, what it gets wrong? Yeah, I, I think that's a really great starting point. I'm glad you identified it, because um, I think it is the sort of go-to narrative for when people are trying to understand what the war was like for most troops. Um, I think you could take any number of films or books, but maybe the obvious one would be Saving Private Ryan, where we have this collection of mostly grizzled veterans, but we also have our sort of stand-in character, the younger um, soldier, who's a bit timid and shy throughout, a bit scared of war, but wants to document what's going on and understand it better. Um, And over the course of the film, he grows more and more accustomed to um, how this group of men interact the kinds of masculinity that they display, and the nature of war itself. Uh, And by the end, he moves from someone very young and naive and even merciful, uh, even sparing a German prisoner, to one who actually kills that prisoner uh, at the end of the film. Um, And I think that story is appealing in a lot of ways because it speaks to the sort of good war idea of a naive, innocent country Uh, brutally attacked by the Japanese and then thrust into the position of needing to lead the the world and and, and to fight the war and win it. Um, And I think that that narrative is very appealing because it very much presents the U.S. as rightfully ascending to a kind of American century in the Cold War. And it also 
depicts a kind of moral um, purity to the cause, uh, seen both in combat, but also the sort of uh, doting family members um, and civilians at home doing everything they can to support the war. So it's a very unifying picture of the United States that papers over a lot of the conflict that was actually occurring on the home front. Mm-hmm. Great. And um, another question that I'd like to start out with um, is uh, how my guests arrived at these projects. Like, At which point did you um, realize that you needed to do a project on U.S. troops stationed in the U.S.? Yeah, it was originally um, in, in uh, doing my Ph.D. at Boston University. I was originally interested in doing a project on kind of the urban history of the Vietnam War. Oh, interesting. Uh, and trying to make an argument that, you know, actually a lot of the most important decisions, events, um, and um, thought processes sort of going on are people stationed in urban cities like uh, Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, um, and that a lot of the urban politics, especially of ZM ascending to power, are, are forged there. Um, and as much as when you're a graduate student, they tell you, you know, even if there's somebody doing a similar project, um, <laughs> I ultimately decided that uh, a book, Cauldron of Resistance, was way too similar to what I was doing. We had both sort of <laughs> a very, um, for me at least, uh, felt, oh, oh gosh, I've, we both arrived independently at the same argument, but this is far too similar. So I, I needed to switch up my project. Um, and I kind of went back to some of the work I'd done at, as an undergraduate thinking about um, military masculinity and the overall experience of being a soldier, uh, which I had always thought tended, we tended to get wrong a bit in, um, in some histories, but also in broader popular culture, because we focus fairly exclusively on the combat soldier. Uh, so I was interested in thinking about what's the actual daily experience uh, of a soldier or a sailor like. And then my advisor, Brooke Lower, had also written a, a fantastic article looking at um, sort of the longer history of uh, VJ Day, VJ Day, excuse me, uh, Victory Over Japan Day, specifically focused on New York City and sort of the famous uh, Times Square kiss, where the kissing sailor is leaning over and um, embracing and kissing a woman in celebration of the end of the war. Um, and unpacking that mythology was a project I was very much interested in, um, and we sort of set off from there. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Um, yeah, the, I mean, the classic line of, uh, you know, about GIs in the Second World War is that they were overpaid, oversexed and over here. And, uh, you know, this, but this is, you know, like um, British soldiers um, complaining about, um, uh, you know, American soldiers stationed in Britain or whatever. Um, uh, but uh, your your book is really playing with the here part of that statement um and so you take like you know you 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 change our focus or you know shift our focus um away from um you know the the theaters of war which uh, a lot of the soldiers never even um you know went to um and instead focus on um the uh the united states the domestic the continental united states um you know the training bases the transit stations the uh liberty ports um can 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 you just before we get into like the individual chapters and some of the more particular stories um can you just give a sense of um 
the um, like the the number of soldiers um, who were in the U.S. Um, and just how long they would have been spending, um, you know, before they would have been deployed overseas. Or um, yeah, can you just give us a better sense of that? Yeah, of course. Um, so uh, I'd, I'd have to look at the book again, but I believe over sixteen million served uh, throughout the entire war, and up until, you know, ex, um, preparations for D-Day accelerate in the spring of 1944, um, you know, about 75, you know, 65 to 75% fluctuates a little bit uh, are, are based within the U.S. And troops went through a number of different stages before they actually might leave the U.S. Of course, 25%, I think, as you said in your introduction, never do leave the U.S. because um, you need a lot of administrative support for those combat soldiers. This is what we call the the tooth to tail ratio. There's a much bigger tail in the U.S. military than there is teeth. Um, And these are people supporting logistics, uh, supplies, medicine, cooking, transportation. These are the main things that most people in the military uh, did, especially in the Army. And so they would go through a number of stages before they, let's say that they actually leave. They're going to go to um, their registration and induction induction camp. They'll go through basic training. They might go through a specialist camp. And then they're going to be shuttled throughout the U.S. They might go on to do different kinds of training. They might be employed in different labor practices. Some are used as longshoremen, for instance, and they go between different port cities depending on where they were needed. But uh, in acceleration before they're going to actually leave to go overseas, they would certainly go through a Liberty port and be there for, uh, in some cases, up to a month or two um, with a lot of time for uh, leave and furlough, meaning they were going out into the city. And uh, on any given night in New York City, for instance, you might have tens of thousands or even over 100,000 uh, troops surging into the city. And very often, it's not like they're evenly distributed, of course. They're tending to go to the same places. Uh, Times Square and um, Coney Island are two of the favorites. So it's a very concentrated mass uh, of troops in these places, which of course creates real issues in terms of um, overcrowding, uh, policing, and a number of other issues that we can talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just moving on a little bit, um, something that I really like about your book is that it's, focuses on like structural reasons or there's there are structural explanations for um you know why um gis behaved uh, the way they did um and one way that you do that is you think about um the like organization of the um the army uh in at the beginning of the second world war um and thinking about how like how the army uh, the military made certain choices um, that uh, built up this almost like anti-civilian, um, like hyper-masculine culture. Um, do you want to uh, talk a little bit about that? Yeah, of course. Um, so I, I think the military experiments with a number of different approaches to building up, you know, esprit de corps and discipline. These are the two major concepts that Marshall, uh, 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 you know, the chief of staff talks about in, in a number of different documents. Uh, but other uh, planners, even throughout the Navy, are concerned with the very same thing about how do we get um, 
all these citizens, right, into a more soldiering mindset. Um, and the originally thing that they focus on is kind of a more older model of esprit de corps going back to World War One, but frankly, even, uh, and it seems silly to say, but almost to the Napoleonic era, right, of, you know, like serving the state and fighting for patriotism and country, you know, and all those sort of uh, very grand ideals. Um, and it just doesn't work. I mean, I, I think within their own... Um, archival materials uh, within the National Archives uh, and in regional National Archives. Again and again, they talk about the failures to achieve this. Um, I think the readers can, can find this as a digital resource, but, you know, in, in Time and in Life magazines, you know, at this period, um, you know, soldiers are openly uh, questioning uh, FDR, the war effort. They talk about um, where they're serving as this goddamn hole. Um, you know, it, it's very, it's not shaded in all in their disdain, um, especially pre-Pearl Harbor for uh, any kind of military service. But even after the boost in morale that we see after Pearl Harbor, um, problems with discipline, uh, troops failing to salute officers, getting into brawls with officers, um, you know, abandoning their posts in large numbers continue. And so the the military eventually decides um, that this more kind of um, organic barracks culture, which begins to identify civilians as soft uh, and being a civilian as being uh, akin to being emasculated, is a more um, powerful force for organizing their men and drawing an opposition line between civilian identity and soldiering identity is what becomes the greater and greater focus of military indoctrination and training uh, during this period. And it's important, I think, as we're talking about this, because I, I think my book tries to make some real criticisms of military policy and the way troops acted uh, at times. But it's important to keep in mind just how poorly um, a lot of the training and mobilization process was done, how little infrastructure there were. Men are often arriving to completely barren camps. Literally, you can just see like the, the the dust flinging through the air as they arrive off the buses. They're you know like their accommodations are completely you know ramshackle. Um, they're burning you know wood smoke inside these barracks in 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 just a horrible way. It's a really not pleasant place to be training. Um, and most of the instructors, especially in the early stages of the war, really don't know what they're doing um, because they don't have combat experience. Um, and so it's a really tough place to be. And in that hardship, you need to find some way, I think, to legitimize what you're doing. And more and more men uh, turn to this idea that to be soldierly was to be kind of a, a very heterosexual, very virile, very aggressive swaggering and all these qualities are going to be things that leaders like uh, you know Patton very famously uh, were going to support as the the means of getting men ready for for war mm -hmm. um, and uh, one story that I think highlights um, a lot of this is um, uh, the so-called Yuhu affair. Um, do you want to uh, just share with listeners um, what the incident was and what the fallout was from that? Yeah, so there were uh, a few troops who were um, out and about, and they saw some uh, women, young women, 
and they essentially started yoo-hooing or catcalling at them. Uh, and they were near a golf course as this was uh, taking place. And um, just so happened to be at that time, there was a general, General Lear, uh, who saw his own men, you know, behaving in this way. Lear is, I think, a very old school sort of officer and regarded this as a real affront to the conduct of how you're supposed to be in uniform, according to Lear's uh, vision of soldiering. Uh, and so he went over to them and began, you know, cussing them out, basically telling them to fall in line, not, you know, do what they were doing. Um, unfortunately for the men, um, Lear was not wearing his general's uniform, but he was, in fact, dressed like a sort of elderly golfer. Um, and they sort of brushed him off in a um, very unbecoming way. Um, so Lear later got his uniform, found the men and punished them Uh fairly severely by making them on these very long runs in extreme heat. Um, some of the men got sick. Uh, and this basically boiled over into a, um, a somewhat important national news story. Um, all the papers reported on it. Um, and basically the consensus was that, you know, there's nothing really wrong with some boys, you know, exercising their good manly virtue by yoo-hooing at some women was the press consensus. And certainly the consensus within the Senate was even more harsh towards Lear. Um, some senators, uh, you know, basically tried to prevent his later promotion, said that he, you know, had absolutely, you know, uh, treated these soldiers in, in a most horrible way um, and that he effectively needed to be punished for doing so. Um, they would punish him later by continuing to uphold, uh, to, um, sorry, to uh, prevent his, uh, his promotion. Um, and, and so the, the, the set of precedent, I think, um, early on that anyone trying to prevent troops from, you know, behaving more acceptably in public and not catcalling or wolf whistling after women or pursuing women in that way was going to be punished. And this, this stuck with Lear throughout his entire career when he finally got back from Europe once the war ended. As he got off the boat, you know, the swarm of, um, of troops and sailors gave him a big yoo-hoo as yeah. he got off the boat. So it's something that very much endured, uh, endured throughout his uh, career. Mm-hmm. And what I find really fascinating about that story is how um, the um, like the the, the anti civilian or anti woman um, uh, culture within the military was um, also something that was um, you know um, like consented to by at least a, a pretty big portion of the public you know in terms of the press and the politicians um, and so yeah this like this this divide between the military identity and the civilian identity um, was something that was like being built up um, uh, by um, by both sides um so something that i found really interesting another thing that i found really interesting sorry there are just a lot of things in this book that i found interesting mm-hmm. um is uh your point about how um we like you know us historians um of the u.s we like to think of uh, or we, we we think it's important to think about um how the U.S. military exercises legal power over foreign places and foreign people, um, and how this is actually really critical for you know understanding like the extension of U.S. power, the extension of U.S. empire. 
Um, and um, and you make you know you make an analogy between um, this form of legal power um, uh, and the various legal powers that the uh, the military uh, um, uh, you know got for itself um, during the Second World War um, over civilians in the U.S. Um, uh, you know so that um, soldiers were insulated from uh, you know various uh, you know rules and regulations um, uh, they were uh, you know they, they got all, all these certain privileges that civilians didn't get um, can you talk about this um, this analogy and, and maybe some of those um, privileges um, that soldiers got sure and and I think you know as a starting point it is important to acknowledge that, you know, civilians in other countries had a, a harder time than 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 U.S. civilians, right? Um, so, if you were a civilian in Normandy during the invasion, this is partly what uh, Mary Lou Roberts looks at in what soldiers do. Ruth Lawler also has uh, some really mm-hmm. great emerging work on this as well, um, and Zach Fredman has a great um, great work as well on uh, U.S. troops uh, treatment of. Uh, of civilians in China during the World War II. Mm. So they, they all make, I think, really good points about how, in a lot of ways, it was worse uh, in these overseas areas. But I think the critical thing is that there's a lot more linkages than there are dissimilarities. And one of those dissimilarities, as I, I think you're, you're rightly pointing to here, is the extra-legal and extra-territorial, in a sense, rights that... Um, that sailors and soldiers were, were afforded by the army and the Navy. And what I mean by this in many ways is that if you commit almost any level of crime, excluding a few, I think murder and arson were, were some of the most common ones, you're not going to be published, uh, punished by a civilian court. The um, established articles of war, which are the, the legal precedents guiding uh, the army and then rocks and shoals, as it's commonly called in the Navy, both establish basically that if a uh, soldier or sailor is arrested for an offense, even if it's a civil offense, they need to be turned over to military authorities. Civilian authorities have no right to hold troops, even in the U.S., even if they've committed a civil offense. Um, And this privilege is really important because it excuses many of the kind of behaviors that troops are engaging in while they're in U.S. ports like, you know, again, New York City, San Francisco, L.A., San Diego, Boston. Um, And in doing so, they very much mirror the same sort of experiences that other Americans in earlier stages of U.S. empire, you know, had of having that kind of ability to only be tried by American courts if they committed an offense while they're in a foreign country. Uh, and U.S. troops use this and officers use this in many ways to excuse all kinds of criminal behaviors that troops are engaging in while on leave and liberty. Um, and it, I think it even goes farther, too, because uh, the Army and Navy are also trying to apply some of their legal precedents to civilian workers working on Navy ships, for example, or in Army and Navy controlled munitions, uh, you know, uh, stockpiles and factories and things like that. Um, so there's even attempts at some points to apply um, military uh, courts, you know, court martials to people not even in uniform. 
So I think it shows the very expansive nature of the military's legal purview during this period, not just abroad, but also within the continental U.S. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, maybe just a really basic question. Um, Can you tell us what soldiers would do on on leave? Like, you know, they... um, uh, like their their furlough was something that was um, you know really important, something they they look forward to. Like you know, so um, like what 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 do soldiers do? Yeah. So it's it, I, when in the book I try to identify three sort of major um, activities that they'll engage in. One of those is is drinking. Uh, one of those is brawling, and one of those is sex. Now. Did all troops, you know, commit a sexual assault? You know, of course not. But it was a very common sort of thing to experience and see on these nights where leave and liberty is taking place. Um, so uh, like a standard um, description that you'll see over and over again in soldier and sailor memoirs is that uh, the leave uh, point approaches in the day the men start to leave the ships near uh, the port or dockyards that they're stationed at or the railroad station that they've come in on. They start um, getting, as they would say, you know, liquored up and they found all kinds of ways to, to find um, alcohol, including at one point uh, distilling torpedo fuel. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Uh, uh, They, they, they find a way to take torpedo fuel and actually distill it into alcohol. Um, So, that, that's kind of like the first stage of the night. Going out then, getting increasingly drunk, maybe finding a civilian to brawl with. Uh, one of the terms used in this period is 4F, which is a draft class designation, i.e. meaning someone who um, is not going to be drafted for any number of reasons, but it's more often associated with you know people who object to being it or are uh, physically handicapped in some way. That's not the full gamut of why someone might be designated 4F, but it becomes a pejorative term for male civilians who are kind of unworthy or unfit to wear the uniform. So they would be targeted, men not in uniform. Uh, But they would also very often brawl with civilian police or even their own police forces, you know, military police and shore patrol. There are, you know, really countless records going through uh, stuff in the National Archives and the Regional Archives of men beating up shore patrol officers or reaching for their guns and things like that. Um, so there was a real disdain for police um, officials throughout this period uh, that that could happen on any given night, really. And then the other element is um, trying to find women, um, either uh, in a romantic way, but also, and, and too often, as I try to capture in the book, in a very coercive way. Um, so for many white heterosexual troops, uh, these are the ones who are going to not really experience any kind of policing oversight. It's a very different story if you're not heterosexual or not white. But for white heterosexual troops, you might start by finding a good, what they called a perch, right? So maybe a place near a subway station in Times Square or near Scully Square in uh, Boston, And there you could kind of leer or wolf whistle, often with a group of other men, and then might pursue or, you know, follow a woman, either try to take her to a bar, go back to, you know, a place for sex, um, 
but also going to bars and things like that was very common. And it all becomes this kind of um, cacophony, right, of drinking, sex, brawling, coercion um, that ends, you know, at the end of the night with um, men being spilled out into the into the streets. Um, so it was very raucous, very violent uh, and filled with civil military conflict um, because many civilians, people ran the bars um, understood that in some ways, right, these men are bringing in huge dollars to these entertainment zones, but they're also a real threat and danger at times to the lives and property of civilians. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, you even have stories of, uh, you know, like bartenders, uh, um, you know, getting into fistfights with uh, uh, um, soldiers and sailors, um, you know, sometimes even, uh, you know, like ending in death. Um so, you know, so so far we've really focused and foregrounded um, the experiences of the soldiers and the sailors. Um, and the third chapter, however, um, you kind of um, uh, you know turn the the uh, the camera towards um, women and, and their experiences during wartime. Um, and again, um, you 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 handle this really um, uh, neatly. Um, you know the the classic you you know you tell us the classic story uh or the classic stories the classic images of women in wartime you know like the um you know the emancipatory um entrance into the workforce or the bittersweet goodbyes the um um but you know you you show that like women weren't just um you know working and waiting um uh they you know like now women had money so what do they do with the money um uh you know they um there are all these like new opportunities um uh you know like living near um uh these uh um you know these like factories um so yeah so uh, can you tell us a little bit about um sort of the experiences of uh women during uh the second world war yeah i i, I think it's a really interesting Part of trying to untangle the home front experience because, again, you see the kind of very triumphal story that is often, I think, told in popular imagination about the home front as this being, you know, the period of Rosie the Riveter and the mm-hmm. beginnings of maybe a proto uh, wave of feminism and women into the workforce and, you know, um, economic emancipation, things like that. And of course, historians have done a really good job questioning a lot of those things. Um, but in actually um, trying to better understand that experience, we've tended, I think, to ignore the very usual presence of um, soldiers and sailors in their daily lives. It's not just a teary-eyed goodbye at the start of the war and see you, hopefully, see you in you know 1946 or something like that. Um, instead, you know, troops are moving in and out of the lives of uh, of, of women, and. In some ways, you know, there are places where romance did occur, right? Um, there was a lot of wartime marriages. Uh, letter writing was a very important form of boosting morale for troops and for establishing communication between um, often young couples. Um, Susan Carruthers' book uh, that just came out on uh, Dear John Letters is particularly great at untangling some of this. But I, I think for a lot of women, the presence of troops could be um, a far more, uh, use a word I don't like, but complicated, I think actually suits um, this, this this situation. Because uh, certainly moving into wartime ports afforded 
far more freedom than they might have previously had. They had real money. Um, of course, they weren't paid as much as they should have been for the work that they were doing, which was often dangerous in these defense plans. But they really did have quite a bit of um, disposable income at times. And one of the dynamics that first you know appears here is sometimes that the women have more money at that you know, on the date than the man does. <laughs> and this upsetting of that kind of male breadwinner dynamic that the state was so invested in reinforcing throughout the New Deal and into World War II um, begins to challenge some of that, you know, heteronormative breadwinner um, foundation of American economic and political life. And I think that's part, partly perhaps what drove some of the violence against women by troops, especially. Um, but, but women could also look to troops as a protector. Eleanor Roosevelt, I mean, this is, I think, a sign of how much of a crisis this was uh, in terms of the amount of sexual assault occurring. That Eleanor Roosevelt, you know, explicitly talked about the need for women to find an escort if they're moving through uh, liberty ports uh, and that they need to find a reliable man who might be able to ward off um, attention that they didn't want. So troops could really genuinely offer that and might ward off um, that kind of, um, aggression. Um, but at the same time, these troops, um, are not going to be there forever. And, um, it's a place where women increasingly are trying to figure out, um, as they talk about who are the good men and who are the wolves, wolves meaning a term of like a very sexually aggressive or violent, a physically violent man. Um, and, them trying to figure that out was often very much an individual process where they just had to use their intuition. Um, and of course that, that always didn't always um, work out for them, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like this, this chapter was um, for me filled with um, all sorts of um, really uh, like gobsmacking details, just things that I, I, I wouldn't have expected. Um, you know, at one point you talk about these uh, young women who work at a, a Lockheed factory who um, almost revolted after um, some nearby social clubs um, were closing down because of uh, electricity shortages. Um, and so you, you really see how um, like the war um, was um, providing all these like really novel freedoms and opportunities to, um, you know, like for like new forms of socialization. And, um, uh, but then of course this, this came with uh, a real uh, danger. Um, and uh, yeah, and I think the, uh, the kissing sailor photograph that you um, uh, mentioned earlier, I think is a really good example of this on BJ day. Um uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think you kind of briefly went through it, but do you want to um, maybe talk a little bit about, uh, yeah, just elaborate on that a bit more? Yeah, I, I think it's it, it's a photo that, you know, anyone listening to this has, has almost certainly seen before. Yeah. Times Square framed in the background, a sailor leaning down and kissing and embracing this woman. Uh, and, you know, I think the common story told about this kind of plays into what we started talking about at the beginning of almost the returning veteran hardened and now ready to come back and start a nuclear family. Uh, and, you know, to he's fought for his woman and now reclaimed her back is ready to build post-war America. I think that's some of the mythology baked into this moment of jubilation and celebration. But as you know, a lot of historians have started to uncover and, and Brooke Blower does this really well in uh, her article, which is part of an edited volume, 
the familiar made strange. Um, what she does really well, I think, in that, and, and what I try to uh, also add on to here, is that um, this this story is not true. <laughs> you know that this isn't this isn't correct. Uh, the sailor who we believe is a guy named uh, George Mendoza, I believe, uh, is someone who was getting drunk throughout the day, uh, who had already been grabbing different women along the street and uh, found this um, found this woman and had grabbed her. And if you look up online, you can actually see the photographer Alfred Eichenstadt's series of photographs. There's a whole series of them and, and, and another photographer took one from another angle as well. And what you can see in those photographs is, is that, in fact, this is not like a jubilant celebration of a mutual kiss. This is a woman who's just been grabbed. Um, you know, he's been grabbing at her clothing, pulling her and very much like pushing and pulling her in. Um, and it's a real moment of, uh, you know, sexual assault and coercion. Um, and that kind of forced kissing was a real hallmark of VJ Day, not just in New York City where this photo took place, but in San Francisco, Los Angeles, Boston, uh, of women being forced to kiss um, soldiers and sailors, rapes occurring you know, you know, on some of the busiest streets in these major cities, um, and basically nothing being done for uh, the women who uh, were uh, were assaulted. You know, nothing was ever really done by army, navy boards, or by the civilian police. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's it's so striking because like that is um, you know like one of the Im- images, one of the um, uh, like the real symbols of the war and the end of the end of war. Um, and uh, um, yeah, like it's 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 so clearly um, a fiction. Um, and that kind of takes me to um, another question that I had, um, which is, you know, like the, like the, sto- the stories that you're um, uh, giving us, um, you know, paint a, a very different picture of, um, you know, uh, of um, what GIs um, were doing during uh, the Second World War, um, the, um, you know, civil military relations during the war, um, you know, these, like what you're presenting really deviates from um, the uh, the common story that we uh, tell about the Second World War. You're, you're also um, uh, suggesting that this, these weren't just like one-offs. This, this was structural. The assaults, the rapes, the um, you know the riots, the, like all like all of this debauchery, like all of this was actually pretty widespread. That being the case, how do you explain the continued um, you know mythology of the good war of um, you know the the soldiers as heroes um, like yeah I, it's it's just so, it's something that I I was uh, um, uh, thinking about throughout your book yeah I, I think it's a really fascinating element um, especially because of some of the reactions I got as I developed the research and um, you know when I published the book is that I think a lot of ways the the people who were most positive toward the book were actually veterans um, and who appreciated that I at least tried to understand what actual military experience uh, was like. Uh, and the interesting thing is, I think this extends beyond uh, World War II, that carousing with your friends and 
essentially, um, you know, being uh, a kind of a swaggering man in front of your friends is a hallmark of military identity and a way to mark you in through these almost shared rituals of masculinity. And it's a good question about like why these have been edited out because they're just everywhere. Uh, it's one of those things that um, I would say the history is hiding in plain sight. Um, it, 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 it speaks to the way we've tried to edit out how, um, how the military has allocated what it called at the time spoils of war, right? Access to women, access to sex, access to booze, uh, and ways of blowing off steam that took place in, as I said before, China, Australia, you know, the Philippines, the UK, but also the US. And I think there's a lot of reasons why that history has been um, buried from our memories. Um, one of those, of course, is to make the uh, experience of military service synonymous with, you know, landing on a beach in D-Day or going onto a Pacific Atoll and, you know, fighting it out with the Japanese because it's a way of valorizing um, service in a nation, especially since, you know, of course, it's the 1970s, that has been an all-volunteer force. And that kind of um, celebration of service is a key way for um, U.S. empire and U.S. military to continue doing what it does while civilians at home feel good about what that experience is. If all soldiers are basically combat soldiers and they all put themselves in um, harm's way in some way, you, we can excuse some of the um, we can excuse some of the spoils of war that are taken, uh, to put it euphemistically. Um, so I, I think that that's one element of it. But the other is maybe not a revolutionary point by any means. But World War II is a point of moral clarity in U.S. history um, that is hard to find elsewhere, I think, for a lot of contemporary people. You have the Japanese and Nazi Germany. Um, it's just so clear in, in popular histories and films and books about in video games, I would add, right, about who are, you know, the, who, who's in the moral right here. And so adding in this story that actually not that many troops were engaged in combat and their actual experience of what, of learning a kind of military identity might've been, you know, getting really drunk in Boston and smashing up a bar isn't the heroic story, you know, and I, I can understand that people aren't necessarily um, champing at the bit to abandon that heroic story because it's a very comforting one. But I think it's also one that very much doesn't try to understand the actual experiences of troops, which is, I think, fundamentally what I was um, starting at. But, but it's also one that ignores the reality of what mobilization and war look like. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think uh, that, parallels with the common understanding of um, like what war actually looks like, um, you know, on the receiving end. Americans tend to overlook what, um, you know, like a military intervention would actually look like, you know, in various foreign uh, and far-flung locales. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, I think it's a very central 
part of uh, the American way in the world, um, this sort of like strangely close, but um, always obscuring relationship with war, um, you know, whether it's um, abroad or at home. Um, and I, I, yeah, I think that your book just does such a, a fantastic job of, um, yeah, like just starting to do some of the um, uh, dismantling of those mythologies. So something else that um, I would love to uh, um, talk to you about is um, sort of the um, the the broader subfield of uh, you know that, uh, in which your book is located. And so that's like what I uh, like to think of as the domestic history of U.S. foreign relations, um, and uh, this is uh, something that um, uh, historians um, like Kristen uh, Hoganson, um, you know, yourself, uh, um, uh, Brick Blower, are uh, are all thinking about. And I'm just wondering um, what your thoughts are, um, you know, on this subfield. Why you think it's something that uh, historians of U.S. foreign relations should think about? Yeah, uh, I, I think that's a really great way to frame it. Um, you know, to, to me, it's a field that is really burgeoning with some of the most um, exciting research because it's such a novel way, I think, within our own historiographies, but but also within our courses and modules of helping people understand where those connections are because the sort of isolationist myth of U.S. foreign relations has been something that I think is still very much present in the minds of the public, visioning that um, that throughout mo- most of its history, the U.S. was isolationist. And really only in this you know moment of 1941 does the U.S. begin to become truly engaged with the world. Um, I, I, I think that myth has been quite pernicious um, in... Um, preventing us from seeing those transnational connections right between us foreign relations and what's taking place domestically and how often there are similarities between what's going on in Sydney, Manila, you know, San Francisco and London. Um, and so I think that's one of the crucial points that I was initially trying with the book. Um, and then I, I think for, you know, even for historians, we sometimes, um, and, uh, we maybe sometimes lazily still accept, this notion of isolationism uh, in U.S. foreign policy and, dra- and draw a very f- um, distinct line, right, between these two sectors of our histories and how we teach them. And I hope what the emerging field can really do is show those um, broader connections. I think even within the public, you know, a book like, you know, Daniel Immervar's uh, How to Hide an Empire has begun to argue, right, for a greater connection between um, empire and the domestic U.S. in its own way. I'm not going to go into all the debates about that book that Paul Kramer engaged in, of course, but 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 I, I think that it's a really interesting way, especially for our students, to understand exactly how empire is manifested in different ways and how the U.S. public itself has more and more experiences of that. And, you know, I think about that even today with the nature of policing in the United States and how many policing tactics are taken from abroad and from our wars and Mm -hmm. used at home. Um, And so I think this is something that's important for us in terms of our practice of history, but also thinking about contemporary politics today. Mm -hmm. 
I think that's really well put. Uh, and just to round out our conversation, um, I would love to hear um, more about uh, what you're working on right now. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I, I've kind of gone in a, um, a, a different time period, but I'm still trying to understand some classic uh, American figures. So I think this book, I'm trying to understand the soldier. My next project, I want to try to better understand the cowboy. Hmm. Um, and and so with this project, I'm very much interested in um, cowboys and ranch managers going abroad to places like Brazil, Argentina, um, Southern Africa, uh, Australasia to expand American beef markets. Uh, hmm. And this is taking place um, from the you know late 1800s into the 1960s and trying to track kind of the ecological imperialism that uh, both American and British cowboys and ranchers, I think this is a small digression, but, you know, many of the most famous like American cowboys and ranchers weren't born in the U.S. A lot of them are Scottish, actually. Right? Oh, that's um, really interesting. Yeah. So there's a whole history of kind of the cowboys of uh, the Highlands, as they sometimes describe themselves. So I, I'm looking into that larger um, history that um, is a transnational history, but also tackles the histories of empire, capitalism, and ecology. Um, today, um, I, I've just, uh, you know, this this point is brought up in an article I just published for, um, in, in, into the stacks essay that I published for Modern American History. Um, but today, you know, the beef industry and the dairy industry combined, so just beef and dairy, produce more emissions than the entire European Union. So it's a massively... Oh, wow massively important, you know, in terms of ecology and what our climate is going to look like industry that, you know, outpaces, you know, this huge region of the world. Um, And that system of creating a uh, meat and dairy system, building it in countries like Argentina and Brazil was in many ways directly set up and influenced by these um, American cowboys and ranchers and British cowboys and ranchers um, trying to seize control of beef export markets uh, at the turn of the century. So I, I'm diving more and more and more to you know, the history of beef and uh, ecology and empire. That sounds like a fantastic project. Uh, I'll be really excited to see what you do with it. Aaron, again, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Uh, this has been a terrific conversation, really eye-opening. Um, you've uncovered such gobsmacking material about World War II. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Dexter. I really enjoyed this. Uh, And I'm Dexter Fergie, and you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I've been speaking with Aaron Hiltner about his book, Taking Leave, Taking Liberties, American Troops on the World War II Home Front. It was published in 2020. I highly recommend that you go and get a copy. Okay, take care.